Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Banking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, the problem with a trade deficit. Well, what's wrong with a trade deficit? Donald Trump seems to hate them. But if you're importing lots of goods, doesn't that mean you're generating money in your own economy and people are wealthy enough to buy those goods? Is that really such a big problem? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, Alex Howlett, one of Steve's supporters on Patreon, wrote in a comment recently that he doesn't see a problem with a trade deficit if a country can produce its own money. Because if you have a deficit, then other countries are happy to take your money as a payment. So it must be worth something. You just keep on printing it to buy more goods. Whereas if you have a trade surplus, countries aren't as willing to sell their goods to you as cheaply. So you have to produce more money to buy it, which creates inflation. And to avoid inflation, you have to produce more of your own stuff in your own country. So he says uh, our country can still, still continue to print money so long as the additional spending is activating unused productive capacity on your own economy. Otherwise, we get inflation or measures that are introduced to inhibit inflation, which obviously can only be a bad thing. So in short, he's saying it's better to be in deficit and print money for overseas than it is to develop money for domestic consumption. So in other words, uh, Steve, he's saying a trade deficit is a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, well, this this, this is one point I've had uh, as a point of dispute with modern monetary theory for a long time. And it comes out of and as I put this to Alex, that uh, this is a very Euro- United States-centric view because it's very easy for the United States to give pieces of paper in one direction and get goods in the other, but it's not so easy for, um, uh, well, let alone Australia. Uh, for, you know, it's any, any country that is not, whose currency is not accepted in international trade can't do that. They've got to actually buy another country's, country's currency to with the United States before they can actually buy those goods. So... I think this is something which comes out of the United States having a very unique position as being the reserve currency of the planet. And therefore, any other country can run out of United States dollars except the United States. And what has come out of this, I think, is a contradiction of the basic logic of modern monetary theory, because what modern monetary theory starts from is saying, let's get your accounting right. And what is actually happening when you're running governments, uh, government deficit? Well, what you're doing is you're actually crediting bank accounts of the private sector, uh, whereas if you're under government surplus, you're debiting the accounts of the private sector. So in one case, you're creating money, in the other case, you're destroying it. And therefore, government deficits are a good thing uh, to the extent to which they provide the money that the private sector needs for its own commercial activities. If you go in the other direction, then it's bad. So that's, you know, I entirely agree with that. But I think when it comes to trade deficits, the logic's been screwed up because being American-centric, uh, and Warren's having a fairly, he's, he's a good, he's a good guy, but he's got a very forceful personality, and he also is a was funding a lot of the um, uh, research being done by people in modern monetary theory. So I think there was an unwillingness to actually take him on on this front. 
uh, as somebody funded by my patrons, I'm not worried about taking anybody on, even including my patrons. Here, g'day, Alex. Hope you're enjoying the conversation. <laughs> um, because it is, it, is, it is inverting the accounting understanding that that vision, the modern monetary vision, gives of both about the behaviour of private banks and the behaviour of the government sector. Because in both cases, the modern monetary theory is playing quite, in accounting sense, quite correctly. You will create money if banks lend out more than they get back in repayments. You will create money if the government spends more than it gets back in taxation. And then they stuff up on a foreign trade because if you think about the logic the same way, you will create money if your current account uh, in, inflows, in other words, the money you get from the rest of the world for selling goods and services. Let's leave it at the goods and services stage. It's less yeah, con yeah. It's confusing, including financial assets there. We're working strictly in terms of a trade balance. If you were selling more goods to the rest of the world than you're importing back in, in your domestic currency terms, then you are creating money through that process. So let's say, let's take a single transaction. Let's imagine that a, a uh, Australian um, uh, company, let's say it's actually a German company. A German company is selling Mercedes-Benzes to a UK buyer. Then the UK buyer goes to the shop where the Mercedes-Benz is and hands over, a, you know, let's say, 100,000 pounds. That 100,000 pounds has to be shipped to the um, to German uh, uh manufacturer if the money goes directly to the german manufacturer the german manufacturer mercedes takes a hundred thousand pounds to the bundesbank deposit the hundred thousand pounds in the bundesbank the bundesbank then does the exchange rate conversion let's say well that's worth one hundred and ten thousand euro so we put one hundred and ten thousand euro into the account the bank account of mercedes-benz you have created a hundred thousand hundred and ten thousand euro so the role of an export surplus is another way that you can create money domestically. Now, the reason I think that the modern monetary theory has gone, in my opinion, wrong on this point is that the same process does not apply uh, to the, the rest of the world. It does apply to the United States, and that is that if you want to buy goods from overseas at the moment, you've got to convert everything into American dollars. Now, if you look at the case of, let's say, that... Um, let's say, a, again, a British company trying to buy um, Mercedes-Benz, well, the Mercedes-Benz, uh, that, that's, that's a straight pound to euro conversion, but imagine you've got to go through American dollars to do it. Mm. Um, then you've got to, first of all, sell those pounds, buy American dollars, and then use those American dollars to purchase the, um, the, ger the German goods with euro by doing a euro, the American dollar euro conversion. And that... Um, is something which takes you into the international money market. You are therefore, you're selling pounds to buy dollars. You're driving up the price of dollars. Uh, it all benefits the American economy that way. It makes the American uh, currency more expensive than it would be if it wasn't the reserve currency. Now, what this means is if America keeps on doing that, uh, first of all, because the currency is overvalued, because it being a reserve currency, it's being bought for not just for goods and services but also so that other countries can trade you they've got a higher price uh in america american goods are more expensive internationally that's partly where the trade deficit comes from yeah uh, but they can keep on doing it because people continue accepting american dollars now but in the rest you, of the so world if, it didn't, if, you, if, you, if you didn't go through the american dollars in that process then in, in the example that you gave if if people mm -hmm. kept on putting a demand on, for example, buying something that was in British pounds, then that would increase demand for, for the British pound. So it would the British pound would be worth less because everyone wanted yeah. some. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is the other story because what you start doing is if you, you, when you think about when the money gets, let's go to the Mercedes Benz example again. If you bought that Mercedes Benz car, uh, you've created money for Mercedes Benz out of the transaction, which you can use to invest and produce better Mercedes Benzes. Mm. Now, if, you, if that continues happening for long enough, your Vauxhalls and your Leylands and your, um, what's the other company, Jaguar, yep. all become owned uh, by foreign companies. And gee whiz, I think that's actually happened, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh. So, or shut, or shut down. So what you get is that you deindustrialize your country uh, in the process of running this trade deficit. And that, to me, is the problem. There's, this is partly with modern monetary theory is very, very good on understanding the monetary dynamics and the accounting and the role of government and so on. But you have to link it with what happens to the productive economy as well. And in this particular case, I, I think quite sensibly, modern monetary theory says running an export surplus is a is a better way of creating money for yourself than is uh, having government money creation or having banks creating more uh, loans and they get back in repayments because it's actually building up your productive resources at the same time and it outsources the cost of, uh, of you doing the manufacturing to some other country. So, so all this stuff, mm. uh, and, and you look at the successful countries around the world, leaving the United States out of it for the moment because it has that un, unfair, well, stupid advantage. It's an unfair disadvantage of being the reserve currency. The countries that are the most robust on the planet are, uh, apart from those that have got themselves into financial prices like Japan, they're ones running trade surpluses. Germany, China, um, South Korea, mm. uh, all these countries are running huge trade surpluses. And in Germany's case, the trade surplus is so big, it's running at about 10% of German GDP, that both government debt and private debt is being reduced because the amount of money being created by exports being in excess of imports is so great that Germany, um, money creation by that route alone means you can have money destruction by the other two routes while still having an increasing money supply. So isn't the now, isn't the, isn't the, the textbook theory and I know you hate it when I uh, when I use that term textbook because uh, they're mm-hmm. verbally wrong but I mean if we if we if we put aside the fact that the, the you know the US dollar is used as a reserve currency if that wasn't the case I mean isn't the idea that uh, you, say take the UK for example if we had a trade surplus then there's going to be demand for the pound so the value of the pound is going to rise because there's demand for it which is going to make our exports more expensive uh, so in theory you know that would uh, reduce our exports uh, it would increase the opportunity for somebody else, but then the same thing would happen with them, and, and then the system should balance itself out. That's the idea behind um, floating exchange floating rates. Floating exchange rates, which hasn't happened because, yeah. again, partly several reasons for that. One is a huge part of the transactions are financial transactions rather than driven by goods and services. The, the ratio is over the order of 100 or even 1,000 to 1. Uh, so financial fluctuations and speculation far and away plays a bigger role than the actual trade uh, situation does. Um, so that's that's a major uh, problem in the, in, the, in the equilibrating. I think that in terms of exchange rates leading back to an equilibrium situation, sort of you know a tendency to restore all current account surpluses to zero. Mm. Uh, but the other side of it is that even in, if you actually had a world where it just was was just driven by trading and you know, the financial sector was just facilitating rather than dominating with speculation, um, in that situation, in a dynamic process it's possible that the rate of uh, increase in money supply and investment that enables in the fact of running a trade surplus would be enough that you can continue innovating and pushing your technology ahead of other uh, competitors' technology. So you, because you'll be producing better and better cars every year, you continue getting a exchange rate surplus 
a current account surplus, even though your currency is appreciating. I'm looking at you, Japan, because that's exactly what happened in Japan. Um, I think I think from memory, the, the first valuation of the yen to the American dollar was, I think, it was 360 to one, and it has something to do with some historical. Um, I forgot what it was, some historical coincidence, that level of the ratio, maybe 350 to 1. Over time, it headed down towards 100 to 1. But over that whole period as well, most of the time, Japan was running a trade surplus. And what it's saying, in other words, that the, the process of investing and innovating uh, and the virtuous cycle that comes out of running a trade surplus, which finances part of the innovation you're doing, uh, happens faster than the currency actually adjusts. And so you can have a permanent trade surplus. Now you add to that uh, the situation like the euro, which is locking uh, the, you know, the the, the uh, high inflation countries of of Europe into the same currency as low inflation Germany. That gives them Germany an inflation-driven advantage in foreign trade within the euro region and globally as well, because. The euro would be worth a, if the mark existed, it'd be worth more than the euro. Yeah, that gives Germany another advantage as well, and then you have active policies on top of that. So it's a system where you simply forget about um, exchange rate changes driving you back to zero again. It won't happen. So, and this is one of the major reasons that Keynes wanted to have the bank core. Yeah, the idea with the bank core was to have an international currency, not hold, not owned by any particular country, uh, fixed exchange rates between each. Ex- um, Current national currency and the bank core, and you could run out of bank core by running a trade deficit. Now, if you did run out of bank core by running a trade deficit, you would be forced to go and ask the IMF to let you devalue your currency. Um, but that that would be balanced on the other side by countries running surpluses would be forced to appreciate their currency, or the they would be taxed by the IMF on part of that surplus, and that would be redistributed back to the deficit countries. So, so Keynes's idea is very, very different to this notion that modern monetary theory has got about trade deficits being a good thing. In fact, he saw them as the biggest danger for stability of capitalism over time, and he saw the tendency that deficit countries having to impose deflationary policies on themselves, where surplus countries not being required to run stimulatory policies, it gave you a deflationary bias to global finances. So that's, that's why so let's look at that let's look at the problems of of a deficit then because you talk you i mean you're mentioning the 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 inflation which is obviously one of the one of the causes of it i mean your your currency and if i'm right basically you've got a a deficit so there's less demand for your currency so your currency starts to lose value if your currency starts to lose value then you you start to see uh uh, inflation pick up but you also and you've also mentioned this as well as another disadvantage if you if your currency uh devalues then everyone starts buying up your companies yeah, and that's you start losing your asset base. And I think a large part of what this is, this is something America is not immune to, and this, of course, is something that like, Trump has latched onto and very, very heavily, is that if you're running a permanent trade deficit um, and you start in, you, you, you're not reinvesting as much as you would be if you're running a trade surplus, your country, your companies fall behind the other companies and, of course, of companies from other countries. And, of course, America's made this even worse because they've quite actively um, been involved in, relocating production offshore and particularly to China. And of course, Elon Musk was actually out recently tweeting, being outraged that you couldn't, if you invested in American company invest in China, uh, it can't have any more than 50% of the business. Whereas in America, if a Chinese company invests in America or a German or whatever, they can earn 100% of the business. And he was outraged by this. In fact, China, that was a very clever part of China's own policies. They wanted to secure a trade surplus and they wanted to get... Um, 
as, as much American technology as possible. But they knew that if they just went for the cheap for the cheap labor jobs, then no profit would be kept back in the Chinese economy necessarily. No control would exist in the Chinese economy. And you would have, uh, when the wages rose, at some stage the Americans would move on against some other country, as they had done throughout Southeast Asia before China joined the free trade zone game. So they said, and I was literally, I, I met the people who designed the policy in 1981-82. I'm talking about conversations I had back then with the people who built the Shenzhen free trade zone in China. And they said that the purpose was they were going to take advantage of a loophole in the American, a legitimate loophole, one that the government itself allowed, uh, in the American um, import tariff laws that enabled a, a company to export uh, unfinished goods, partly finished goods, to a third world country, work on them in the third world country and re-import them back to America without paying any tariff on the increase in value. Mm. Now, that was done there as part of a, an overseas aid idea as part of the trade policy. And the Chinese saw that, that you beaut, we can offer that, and but we'll, we'll do it with a little condition. Yes, you can take advantage of our wages being, you know, one thirtieth what they are in America, which, which is pretty much the ratio that applied in 81, 82. You know, you, you pay you paid a, a Chinese worker for a month what you paid an American worker for a day. Um, so we offer this huge carrot to American corporations, but we attach the condition that to do it, you must have a Chinese partner, and within five years, the Chinese partner has to own 50% of the business. Yeah, yeah. Now that gives you an idea of just how attractive this deal was to American corporations, that they had to give up half the ownership over a five-year period. It was still worth their while to do it because they're paying so much less for the workers. And gee, hasn't that worked out well in the long run for the workers? Well, what it's meant is that rather than building uh, manufacturing capability in America over time, the corporations were involved in this whole process of, of basically asset stripping America. Mm. That's where the Rust Belt came from. So, so I don't think it's been at all a good idea. I think it's been, and this is because of what, what, what Trump has now done with his tariff appeal on, on steel is say we're going to rebuild the Rust Belt. Well, this, this is China's way, obviously, of getting some foreign direct investment without losing control and still managing yeah. to ensure that they're taking uh, a big slug of the uh, of the profits. Oh, well, we're talking about China. I mean, China, the Chinese currency doesn't float freely, does it? It's pegged to the US dollar. So presumably that keeps it, you know, if, if China has this big trade surplus, then that is artificially uh, holding the one down isn't it because if there's yeah uh, and it would be much higher if there was high demand for their ex- exports as we, we're talking about trying to reach this this balance china's not playing ball with that yeah and that's again again a common when you're in if you're in running a trade surface you can get away with that game mm. you can continue you know when you when you get these um um you know you're getting an export what you, you're getting money coming up which you turn into renminbi they're getting into yuan or your local currency um, but rather than letting it get into your domestic economy, you then use that money to buy American assets. So you offset the, the, the lower demand for American dollars by buying American dollars, and you therefore stop your currency falling. So you maintain that advantage indefinitely. And trade surplus countries can do that because they've got an indefinite supply in that sense through the trade surplus of American dollars. Whereas those running a, a, a trade surplus country can do it. Trade deficit countries can't do that. So again, it's something which biases things in favour of countries running trade surpluses. And back to Keynes's point, that forces deflationary policies on countries that are not running trade uh, surpluses. And by definition, 
that's an equal amount of money to the, to the trades, trade surfaces themselves. So you have a deflationary tendency coming out of this in the global economy. So how much of all of this is being influenced now by this shift that we're seeing from manufacturing to services? The fact that countries like the UK and the US don't make a lot, they don't physically make a lot, they, um, they have to import the stuff that they're consuming, but they have a strong services industry. Yeah, well, I'm afraid this is one of my favourite lines, and that is that um, people talk about a post-industrial society, and I agree, there is such a thing as a post-industrial society. It's called hunting and gathering. <laughs> That's um, what we're going back to. Yeah, if you if you keep it up for long enough, you deindustrialize so much that all you can do is live off the land. And in a, in a, I mean, I'm being I'm giving exaggerated case there, of course. But if you look at what's happened to the Rust Belt in America, that's pretty much what's happened. They they the productive capacity is gone. It hasn't been replaced by anything else. There are only service jobs, which and by definition you can't have competition in haircuts around the world. Um, so you get low, and you're, or you can't have competition in security. You know, security guards walking around either. You get low-paid jobs like that taking the place of what once were high-paid jobs in manufacturing. And you also, when you look at what are services, the vast majority of so-called services are what's been done by finance, insurance, and real estate. That's the aptly named fire sector of the economy, and they make money by putting the rest of us in debt. So particularly in the UK, a huge part of so-called services is selling debt. Now, that's not exactly a good thing in its own right. And, of course, after a financial crisis, the business suddenly evaporates. So in the UK's case, they thought they could actually, and this is one of Maggie Thatcher's myths, she thought that they, by by deregulating, as well as thinking that would uh, liberate and make much more innovative uh, British industry, uh, she also thought that they'd have a, services sector surplus making up for any trade deficit on manufacturing that occurred that hasn't been the case what you've had is the deficits continued growing well so i don't know it precisely but it's certainly more than three percent of gdp so services have not made up for the fall in manufacturing exports right but i mean services are still sold for a price like i uh, i export services um uh, to australia for example I, I i sell a service to an australian bank they pay me uh, and i import that money in so that's helping the UK balance of trade, and not significantly, of course. I don't charge them that much, but it is, it's helping the, the, the UK balance of trade. To some extent, it, that, and that, that is... It was really different for me selling them, it's just uh, not a, selling them it's furniture. Not a, it, this comes back back to the energy point beforehand that we had talked about as well. The genuine physical surplus in production occurs in manufacturing, because that's where you're harnessing free energy to actually make and do useful work and goods and services and so on. You're saying what I'm saying and is not... You're, you're telling me what I'm doing is not useful. Steve Keane, is that well, what you're talking about? Yeah, but, but why would it be... I wouldn't be invited to your birthday party, so I can't say that. <laughs> why, uh, why, yeah. would, why would uh, selling a service that somebody is paying for be any different to selling a, uh, a piece of furniture that somebody's paying because for? Because productivity doesn't rise over time. You can't produce... Tw- you're not going to be doing twice as many podcasts next week or the next year and twice as many the year after, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, I'm not talking a, a, two, a 100% rate of growth in manufacturing either. But manufacturing productivity rises because over time we work out how to harness more energy and, uh, and we consequently get things done uh, with, with a greater amount of energy content. Right. So it's, the scalability, so it's the scalability of services, which is the... the scalability. Right. Services don't scale. Right. You're, not, you're not going to produce... Like if, if we imagine going forward, let's say there's 3% growth in, in labour productivity in manufacturing... Uh, over a century, then every 20 or so years, you double 
the amount you're producing per worker. So if you double, 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 you're talking about 32 times as much output. No. I don't think Phil Dobby, had he lived for another 100 years, we're producing 32 times as many podcasts. Well, look, if, so if, I, if I live for another 100 years, anything's possible. There. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, yeah. so finally, when when economists say, yeah, well, you know, look at this, uh, imports are up and exports are up, but not quite as much. So our balance of trade is uh, has fallen. But look at this. Isn't it a great sign? Imports are up. That means, uh, uh, you know, we, we're seeing growth in the economy. People are buying. Retail's looking strong. Well, the imports actually turned up as a negative for GDP. This is actually a very good point made by Vox Day recently when he had to substitute for me on a, on a radio show. He said that if you look at the case of uh, with Trump's objective of, of um, reducing imports and increasing exports, if you take the extreme example of say, let's say we could just get go to complete autarky overnight, eliminate exports and imports, ignoring feedback effects, which you have to do in this sort of hypothetical, uh, then that would increase America's GDP by three percent because the gap between exports and imports is about three percent of GDP. No. So in that sense. Uh, you'd actually increase GDP by eliminating imports and exports. Now, that's a hypothetical, it's a thought experiment, but it does make the point that part of the way we actually define GDP includes seeing imports as a negative. Now, that's why I have a hard time, one of the reasons I have a hard time swallowing the MMT argument that uh, it's a positive. And I think it's because, again, as I said at the beginning of this, begin this whole segment, you've got to think through the logic completely and the same logic that applies to government money creation and to private bank creation also applies to creating money through international trade. So if the US keeps growing somehow for, for, for by whatever mechanism and it keeps demanding imports as it has been, uh, but, um, you know, and there's, there's enough domestic jobs keeping people employed and perhaps getting richer so they can keep on importing that just can't go on forever, even though it's gone on for quite a long time already. Yeah, that might sound good because you de- deindustrialization keeps on going, and at some point, uh, you know, you're going to have to be outsourcing your nuclear arsenal to foreign companies. Let's say, for example, Russia. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not going to be taken all that seriously anymore. So, so those domestic jobs aren't <clears throat> going to be there, basically, to give people the money yeah. so that they can import. You've, you've got, and yet they are so far. I mean, we're you know, I mean, America. I mean, if you believe the statistics, and I know you don't entirely, but they're saying you know, jobs have never been better. Yeah. Well. Um, they've had a, they've had a, um, that's a, another thing for a, a future conversation, but a QE led recovery leading finally to credit growth once more and the economy is relatively booming, but still no. below the level of productive capacity. So it's debt, it's debt funding those jobs. Another story. Yeah. 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 Okay. Very good. All right. Makes a lot of sense. Great to talk again, as always, Steve, and we will perhaps pick up on that subject next time. Thanks for coming on. Okay. And thank you, Alex. I hope you <laughs> I look forward to your further feedback and the discussion. Yeah. Let's hope he hasn't uh, cancelled his subscription as a, <laughs> as a result of it. So look, that came in as a response to a comment that was left on the Patreon website. If there's something you'd like us to discuss, then you can do, do the same. Leave a comment or send an email via the site, or you can email me as well, phil at loudmouthcoms.com. Uh, and next time, I'd like to discuss the importance of land values on the economy. It's a scarce resource. We've got a growing population with an expectation of increased living standards. How can that possibly work? Uh, That is next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening today. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.